went to buy, uh, buy a paper at lunchtime today, uh, mainly because I wanted to see, um, you know, kind of if the message of Easter got any mention whatsoever uh, in the national newspapers. Uh, for the last few years, the Times and other broadsheet newspapers have, I think, been taking in turns to have a dig at the Easter story, uh, Easter Day especially. And each have approached the resurrection of Jesus differently, but probably with a similar intention, um, you know, to belittle and undermine the message of resurrection life. But this year, it's interesting, I spent a little while in Sainsbury's down in Earlsfield there. I, I didn't buy all the papers, but I did look at most. Uh, that's probably not right, is it? There we go. But I walked away with the Times, and um, not a mention at all. Nothing. A few religious kind of articles, you know, perhaps the most positive was that of the Prime Minister who's going to use his Easter message later this week at 10 Downing Street to invite a number of Christians in and to make public his own Christian faith. But nothing at all on the biblical message of Easter that Jesus died on that first Good Friday to take a punishment that all of us deserve for a rebellion, a turning our back on God. And three days later, rose again, vindicated by his father, and rose to new life in resurrection of the the first Easter day. But nothing on that. Not a thing in the papers. No criticism. We've had that before. No mockery. There's been a lot of that. No scholarly debate. Just utter silence. And why do you think that is? A few months ago, when Muslims celebrated Eid, there was a few pages, in fact, nearly a pull-out in the Times supplement. Um, Again, it wasn't critical, it wasn't scholarly debate, it was actually very careful and fair explanation of what was going on. Now, I think we've kind of got to that point in our culture now, where we're happy to eat those kind of toasted buns with little crosses on top, you know, hot cross buns, and consume vast amounts of chocolate uh, in, in the form of eggs, But the message that these childlike symbols point towards has been neglected and and sort of relegated to an inconvenience um, and irrelevance that is not worth any ink whatsoever. Uh, The Times is, of course, full of royal wedding articles, and rightly so. I think it's been an absolutely fantastic day. One of my good friends is actually going to be there. Um, and uh, vast amounts of ink have been spilled in the, you know, the papers this weekend about the wars and the struggles in the Middle East. Loads and loads of columns on the, kind of, the austerity measures that the government are placing and all the um, civil servants are up in arms about that at the moment. But not a word on the truth of Easter. Not a word. No one wants to actually criticise the historicity of it anymore because far too many secular historians, never mind Christian historians, but secular historians, they don't want to kind of um, face that at all because they agree with the facts that are written down in the Bible. Resurrection simply has too much evidence um, aligning with it. I think the stage we've got to in our culture is resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection that follows for those who have faith is just too difficult to stomach. Firstly, because it defies rational thinking and science. But secondly, I think, and I think this is the pressing issue, if it's true, then the implications for you and me are huge. So why as Christians do we bother so much to retain this truth 
at the centre of our faith. I suppose the question for today is, is resurrection really that important? Now, without resurrection, I'm going to come out straight with it at the beginning. I think without resurrection, we have nothing. And Paul will spell that out again and again. Every drop of ink in the Times newspaper today, you see, finds its answer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every question that we have, any struggle that we have, any pain that we have in our lives, finds its ultimate answer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promised resurrection for those who have faith with him. So we, like the Corinthians that we've just been reading about, as Christians, if we are a Christian here today, we will face more and more pressure to change what we understand resurrection to be as time goes on. But our challenge is just to hold fast to these truths in this critical and dismissive world who won't print anything about it these days. Now the particular problem in the the church in Corinth that we've just been hearing about was not actually the resurrection of Jesus, the Easter story as such. What I want us to see today is, is examine the question that they had. Their concern was the subsequent resurrection for those who have faith in Jesus. We see the problem, if you have a look down in your Bibles, in verse 12. It says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That is, Christians who have died. So there's the problem stated at the beginning. It's on your outlines there. And it's the key to the whole chapter, chapter 15 of uh, 1 Corinthians. Read it when you get home. It seems once again, if you know Corinthians all, that they've been sucked into um, prevalent kind of secular Greek thinking. That is, they, they believed in the immortality of the soul, but not the resurrection of the body. That's a popular thinking today. So Paul, in defense of Christ's resurrection from the dead, takes their thinking to its kind of logical conclusion. Uh, And we see that in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, he says. Adults, we we do this with children. I've got two boys. I do this the whole time. I've done it today, you know. If you eat all those chocolate eggs, you will explode. It's kind of a a logical extreme um, point that is being made. And Paul is saying, if you think there is no resurrection from the dead, then the logical conclusion to his extreme point is that Christ has not been raised. The reason being is that as Christians, if we are Christians, we are united to Christ in faith. So if we do not rise to new life, resurrected, it means Christ never did. And Paul says in verses 14 to 19, if Christ has not been raised, you see, he kind of kicks off his argument there, And then he gives seven consequences, both in terms of uh, ministry, his life and church together, but also in our personal faith later on. Seven consequences if Christ has not been raised. We're going to go for some firstly consequences for ministry, that is our life, the church. So firstly, um, if Christ has not been raised, Christ has not been raised. He makes a point in and of itself. It's, It's a funny argument. Uh, the, Cor- Cor- the Corinthians who believed there was no resurrection of the dead never intended to suggest that Jesus had not been raised, sorry, had not been raised and was still dead. Because the evidence was far too great. Paul has already shown that back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. 
But Paul is, if you like, pressing the logic home here of their position. If the dead who are in Christ will not be raised, then Christ has not been raised. Paul's argument is founded, as I mentioned, this, this bonding relationship of faith. It is between Jesus and those who have given their lives to him in faith. Uh, it's a union, a gift, as Ephesians tells us, uh, uh, which is another letter from Paul, where we are essentially bound to Jesus. The term in Ephesians is we are in him, literally locked together through faith. Now, I'm, I'm hopefully going to take my boys skiing next season. I'm a bit of a skier. I haven't skied for a couple of years. I figured it's family skiing to, um, next season. I don't know if I, I used to teach a bit of uh, skiing. And uh, when you teach a little kid skiing, you kind of lock them between your legs and they bind onto you. Whatever you do, whether you turn, uh, whether you fall over, they do the same as you. So, you know, if you turn to the left, they turn to the left. If you fall over to the right, you fall over to the left. They do as well. If you go down a mogul run, triple black diamond, they'll do the same. And my wife will kill me at that stage. But there we go. You know, the point is, when you're teaching a kid to ski, the bond is so strong. It has to be. And there's never a time when it can be broken. And similarly, if you're united to Christ by faith, then his death was for you and his resurrection was for you. As you're bound to the wonderful effects of both of those acts of Christ. So if you deny the resurrection of the dead, that is to say, if you deny that Christians, those united to Christ, will not rise to new life when Christ returns, then you have to say that the one that you're bound to, that is Christ, did not rise. The bond cannot be broken. That's the kind of the, the way that Paul is arguing here. We're united to Christ if we're Christians through faith. We're bound to him. And if Christ is not raised, it is such a devastating consequence for our lives as Christians, as all hope is based uh, on this foundation of the gospel. Now, although Paul could have easily dismissed the Corinthians at this point, his extension of logic from their argument continues as he lists more and more consequences. We'll go through them a bit quicker uh, now if we can. Look at verse 14, if you can, with me. And if Christ has not been raised... That is the logical consequence of saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Our preaching is useless, he says now. So secondly, our preaching is useless. He does mention life and uh, ministry in preaching useless. Uh, and so are our lives. So is what we say as Christians uh, if Christ has not been raised. And you have to ask yourself, why bother speak of Christ if he's not been raised, why suffer the mockery that you will do as you speak about Christ in this world? It is pointless, isn't it, if Christ has not been raised? And the word useless there literally translates empty. So you see, if you take the resurrection out of the good news package uh, of Jesus, then he's saying you're left with absolutely nothing. It is empty. It's like... Simon and Garfunkel removing the Simon. All you're left with is a man with big hair and a squeaky voice. I mean, it's, it's pretty much nothing. I can't translate, that's how old I am. Um, so whatever it works for these days. Yeah, it's, take the resurrection of Christ out of the gospel and you have nothing but a carpenter 
turn kind of pretend rabbi called Jesus who did some things which people couldn't explain, who reckoned to be the son of God. But without the resurrection, it's an empty gospel if Christ did not defeat death. And there is no point sharing it. It is useless, Paul says. Thirdly, he says we're false witnesses about God if Christ has not been raised. You see, the very reputation, the character of God, um, is inherent in the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. But Paul and the apostles and all of us who claim Christ's resurrection are false witnesses about God if Christ was not raised. So we say God raised Christ from the dead, but if he didn't, then we must say that God is incapable of that good act, uh, which is blasphemy. It is a false witness about God. Paul, at the end of verse 15, simply hammers home the same point he made in verse 13. And you can imagine the Corinthians at this point, so they're putting their hands up and saying, yeah, okay, I get the point, I get the point. It's all right, Paul, calm down. But Paul is, I suppose, like a a persistent mother trying to get, I I avoided the nagging term, but a persistent mother uh, kind of getting the point across to their children. I remember we always wanted to play cricket in our garden, and the best place for the stumps was always in her flower beds. Um, because it gave her proper distance. And uh, she would go on and on and on. And I, I suppose what Paul is doing here is he's saying again and again and again. And it's piercing our minds and our hearts. Christ has not been raised. And now he goes on. The list goes on. It's ever more painful. But now he turns to more consequences for our own personal faith. And we see that in a... Um, in that section B there of point one, he says, your faith is useless as well. It, of course, it's linked to, in verse 14 um, to the preaching there because, of course, their faith was entirely based on the grounds of Paul's preaching the gospel. And if you take the resurrection out, uh, there's nothing left on which to base your faith. Only a decomposing corpse of an itinerant preacher. You don't want to put your faith there, do you? Here Paul uh, underlines that true faith is produced by looking to Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Faith is not created, sustained or increased by looking at ourselves or looking at others, but only absorbing and understanding more and more this beautiful reality and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you say Christ has not been raised, then... Your faith is useless. It is utterly empty. Secondly there, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. If you have a look down at verse 17 there, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. We know from uh, elsewhere that the wages of sin are death. That's the consequence, if you like. And Jesus will die for our sins, as we remembered on Good Friday. And death, his death marks the end of our separation from God that our sin inevitably produces. But if Jesus stayed dead in that tomb, there are only two possible conclusions we could make from that. Firstly, that he was not the sinless person that he claimed to be and the apostles claimed him to be. Because death would have marked his final separation from God. Or the other conclusion you could make is that he was without personal sin, but... His sacrifice on the cross 
that atoning work which we know about did not get the thumbs up from God. Either way, if Christ remained in the grave, if he wasn't raised, we are still in our sins, facing a judgment that we deserve for our turning back, turning our backs on God. And that's what happens if Christ has not been raised. You are still in your sins. Thirdly, uh, if Christ has not been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Verse 18 here. The logic of their argument leads to the devastating fact that the friends and family they are so uh, appealing to Paul about, who were in Christ, that who, who had been united to, uh, who are united to Christ by faith, they, if Christ has not been raised, will eternally perish as Christ has not raised to life for them. And fourthly, if Christ has not been raised, we are to be, I mean, this is where it really comes home, doesn't it? Verse 19. We are to be pitied more than all men. Any expectation of life beyond, the, beyond death evaporates if Christ has not been raised. We're left with a kind of pseudo-gospel which may give some meaning to life here on earth. But only by following just an example. You know, we're left with a kind of a mentor. A teacher maybe. A good teacher. But comparable with others. Maybe just a cult leader, a religious figure. But if the Christian faith is based on such an empty gospel and a fraudulent saviour, Paul says here, we're to be pitied beyond all men. The stakes, you see, are so high. If Christ has not been raised, we've given up everything for nothing and we're to be pitied. I suppose the parallel would be is people walking past this building right now and just shouting in and laughing. That would be appropriate if Christ has not been raised. So why do certain churches actually want to deny the resurrection of Jesus today? What is the point? Why sacrifice so much for so little? Well, I think too many people, like the Corinthians, have listened to popular thinking of the time. Resurrection is impossible in the laws of science, but God, of course, stands above and beyond. All things are possible, as Jesus demonstrated again and again and again through his life and ministry. Just read the Gospels and be amazed. So Paul has entertained up to this point this hypothetical no resurrection of the dead argument. It's gone on for quite a while. And the logical consequences will have shamed the Corinthians, if you like, into hopefully rethinking their arguments. But now Paul shifts to the more positive, demonstrating that Christ's resurrection has made the resurrection of the dead both necessary and also possible. It begins in verse 20. Please look down with me if you can. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And we get to point two on, our argue, uh, on the outlines there. It'll be much uh, briefer now. Now verse 20 really begins, I, I suppose you might describe it, it's the biggest contrasting but 
in the whole of the Bible, in my mind. Um, he has already shown back in verse 12 that, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of this immense harvest of people who will be resurrected to come. And what Paul is saying here is that Christ has risen, and for all who are united to him, that is, they're in Christ, they will follow. He's the beginning of what is to happen. He inaugurates, starts the process of resurrection. And if he did it, and he did, the evidence is overwhelming. Just read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole, whole of it tonight. And go to the British Museum. There's so much evidence. And if he did, and he did, then those united to him, who have also fallen asleep, that is, who have died, will also rise to new life. So that he now maps out, in verses 20 to 28, some consequences uh, for the future. We're going to scoot very quickly over some of these. Firstly, look in verse 21 to 22. He outlines the necessity of us being raised and how we are able to be raised. Just follow with me, verses 21 firstly. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now Paul, what he's doing here is he's referring to the extremities of the history of death, if you like. We, um, as humanity, are united to Adam. If you like, the first man, he is our ancestor. And, and with him, in him bringing death as the consequence for his sin into this world, we receive this through our um, ancestry, through being born as humanity. Like, like a virus at birth. And there's no vaccine that can get rid of this, or self-help, or mantra. We are born in sin and its consequences. So we're in Adam, and therefore we will all die. We all know that to be true. The, the only certainty of life is death, isn't it? Death came through the man, Adam. And so a man, someone in the same order as Adam and us, needs to reverse that process. And that man is Christ. He affects the reversal of that process born in Adam. So Christ is, you see, the first fruits. He is God's pledge to those who are united to Christ in faith. So we know the necessity of resurrection from the dead because we are all in Adam. We are all certainly going to die. Because of our sin. But we see how it can be made possible by the reversal of the process of death in Jesus being raised as a pledge for all of us to see. So if you're a Christian here tonight, the wonderful thing is that you can gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because so many of you are kind of legal city folk, you can, you can essentially view him as a contract. A contract binding you in faith to eternal glory. So as Christians, our resurrection is necessary and possible. Paul continues, we're going to go very fast now, through verses 23 and 24, showing the order of things to come. 
Huge debates on this. We're going to run quickly. I'm not going to cover it. But have a look at verse 23. Each to his own turn, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, those Christians, then the end time will come. Now Paul then goes on, verse 25, to show that this rule of Christ fulfills the words of the psalmist in Psalm 110. That he's saying, this has been foretold hundreds of years before. It is part of God's sovereign plan. And the last and greatest enemy to be destroyed is death in verse 26. And amazingly, and lastly, when that most magnificent battle is won, when the victor strolls back to his rightful position of honour and glory and respect and and worship that he he, um, deserves, we see something here absolutely gobsmackingly, outrageously humble. You see the obedient son of God, having just won the battle of all battles, he deserves everything, yet look what happens. You know, he's lived, he's born in humility. He's lived a life of humility. He's performed miracles, saved lives, yet remained humble throughout. He even died in humble circumstances. Now risen, glorified, the defeater of death, Christ, Christ will return. And verse 28, when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject. To him who put everything under him. Christ will hand back the authority that he's been given in obedience and humility. So that what God may be all in all. It will be complete at that point. And I I wondered really how to describe this. And I thought, I could give you all sorts of pictures from the Bible. Let me just give you some words from the book of Revelation. Because I think when we get to this point um, of the resurrection story, it is helpful to see what this brings. If you like, the future consequences. Revelation 21, you'll know the words well. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. See, the consequences for the resurrection of the dead, those with faith in Christ, should really excite us in a British way. Humble us. Yet a lump should be in our throat. Because this is unbelievable. Jesus has been raised for us and we in Christ shall rise with him on that day that he returns. And it looks amazing, doesn't it? And Easter Day today is a remembrance, a celebration that Christ has done this. He has been raised. But it's the guarantee also that he will return and gather his children, those with faith in him, for that future, beautiful, pain-free glory. Let's look at some consequences for the present I suppose it just helps us ticking along for the next 50 years, or whatever it may be. Paul now turns back to the few doubters in Corinth. And he asks two questions, one of them, and one for himself as well. Really to ascertain the point of the practices of their life. 
uh, if there's no resurrection of the dead. And they were doing some strange things. The practice in Corinth, as you could see uh, and you heard, was that uh, Paul wrote about it was a baptism for the dead. And he's simply asking the question, why bother um, if there's no resurrection of the dead? It seems that they were baptizing people um, and bringing in kind of substitutes. If someone had died who was a Christian, had faith in Christ, and, and had missed out on being baptized, they'd s- substitute someone in and baptize them for them, the person who had died. Uh, they're probably doing it for kindness reasons, to be kind to the family who were worried. And Paul, I don't think here, is condoning the practice. Rather, he's saying, yes, life is tough and people are dying. There's persecution around in the church. But because of their faith, uh, why baptize? Why baptize the dead if you think there is no resurrection of the dead? It makes no sense, guys. And then he continues looking at himself, saying, yeah, yeah, life is tough. And uh, why do I bother preaching? Life is precarious, he's saying. Now, why would I bother continuing to do what I'm doing if there's no resurrection for the, of the dead? It would make no sense. So let's jump to the end. I think it's appropriate now. Paul finishes, just cast your eyes down, in verses 33 and 34. And this is his concluding remarks of this section. And he's speaking to the congregation to begin with. And he says, do not be misled. They clearly have. Bad company corrupts good character. But now, secondly, he turns in verse 34 to the few who were denying the resurrection of the dead. And he's already called them bad company. Doesn't mix up his words, does he? And he finishes off saying this, come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I think he's being clear here. Do not be ignorant. Christ died and was raised. And if prominent leaders in the church and the press around us and the world around us and our friends around us and all the people in your office say, ah, no, that's a load of rubbish. Science has shown us that that can't possibly happen. And then what do we need to do? We need to remind ourselves of Paul's warnings here. To not be misled. To come back to our senses. To look at the evidence. And to stop sinning. Turning our back on this wonderful truth. See, the only convincing reason we link God the Father to the person and work of Jesus, the most compelling reason we link the Father with the Son is the resurrection of Christ. Because that is the point where the Father vindicates the Son. Only God has power over death. And if Jesus rose from the dead, God is the one who raised him and we will rise with him if we are united with him by faith. So is resurrection really important for Christians? Well, we celebrate today the resurrection of Christ. The evidence, I would love to say to you, is overwhelming. I think it is. And if you don't believe me, come and ask me and I'll show you. And you can make your own mind up. But I think the implications for life are amazing and overwhelming. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that death has been defeated. And that we, by faith, can now live with hope 
today, tomorrow, next week, until the day we die. And we can live with that certain knowledge of glory to come. So lastly, happy Easter. Let's pray. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have hope not just now, though we love and appreciate and give you great praise for the hope we have now. But more than that, and what we celebrate today, this wonderful Easter day, is that we have hope that goes on beyond the grave because you rose from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming. And we want to give you great thanks and praise. Because we, we don't want to be pitied more than all men. Rather, we want to be uh, asked questions. We want to be examined for what we believe and what we put our hope in. So that you can be commended to all those that we know. Lord, I do pray that more and more people, as we speak to them, as they get to know us better, and our friends ask questions. I pray that more and more people would know the hope of Christ which goes on past the grave to eternity with you. Amen.